Hey guys, what's up? My name's Cecilia. And I'm Brooke. And welcome back to another episode of Women of the Way. This week we're on to the sixth fruit of the spirit. We're working our way through. Um, we're going to be talking about goodness. Yeah, we're going to be talking about goodness. And Cecilia, I'm glad that you remembered the number that we're on since I forgot last week, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're good with scripture, not with numbers. Yeah, that's true. Math is... Uh, <laughs> Not for me. Um, but yeah, moving on from the evils of math. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> math is evil, guys. That's today's lesson. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, we're going to kind of do a different format this episode. And we really just wanted to talk about God's goodness um, and really get into how he's good even in our suffering. And even um, when we see the evil in the world around us, how God is still good in spite of that. And so, yeah, Cecilia, you just want to jump right in? Yeah, let's go for it. Um, let's start with the uh, definition you found, because yeah. I really like that definition. Yeah, so I'm doing a, a Bible study right now um, from Jen Wilkin on Genesis 12 through 50, which is a great Bible study if y'all are looking for like a really solid study that isn't uh, like fluffy um, and actually really gets into the text and really forces you to study and love God with your mind as well as your heart and not just kind of the basic kind of Christian woman Bible study. Jen Wilkin is amazing. You should look her up. Um, but this is what she has to say about the attributes of God and especially his goodness. So she says that God is what is best and gives what is best. He is incapable of doing harm. So the essence of his character is goodness. He's incapable of doing harm. He is what is best and he gives what is best to his children. So, yeah, that's kind of going to be the focus of this episode is his goodness. So, yeah, I really like that definition. It kind of hits all the different points. Yeah. Uh, but like we've been doing, um, we wanted to go back and kind of look at the definition of good because it's, it's kind of a generic term. Like we say good for like everything. Yeah. Um, but I looked it up and the like dictionary definition for good as a noun is righteousness which totally makes sense for this to be the essence of God's character, that God is righteous. Mm -hmm. um, but something interesting I noticed is that the adjective <clears throat> definition of good is having the qualities required for a particular role. Like saying the schools in this area are good. Like they're doing what they're supposed to do and they're doing a good job at it. Mm -hmm. So something I thought of was... I feel like we get that confused when we're talking about God's character that, you know, when we say God is good, are we saying that God is good in his character or are we saying that he's doing what we think he's supposed to do? Like, I feel like that's kind of where the root of the debate of God's goodness comes from is not from, is his character good, but is he good? Is he doing what I want him to do in my circumstances? Mm -hmm. But like, we really can't be the judge of that because we aren't God. 
Like, we aren't perfect. We don't know, like, the exact way that God is supposed to function. And we aren't good and perfect ourselves. So, like, we can't really make that judgment. Like, there, there's so many people that I know that kind of struggle with this definition of God being good because of suffering and circumstances in their lives. Like, you know, God let my parents divorce or God didn't give me this job that I wanted. So they say God isn't good, not because of God's character, but more so because God isn't doing what they think he's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And again, we can't make that judgment because we aren't God. Um, It's just, it's easy to understand God's goodness when it matches our expectations. Like I think when we talk about God's goodness, we kind of picture this superhero Like, God is the hero. He defeats the bad guys. He saves the day. Um, And he does, but not really in the way that we think about it. Like, if you think about the, like, the stereotypical hero and villain. Like, if God is the hero, then, like, sin and Satan is the villain, right? Mm -hmm. But if the hero is really supposed to beat the villain... We are also the villain because we're sinful. So God should beat us. And then we're like, whoa, whoa, I don't like that definition anymore. (laughs) Because in our heads, if God is good and God is just, he's supposed to defeat the bad. We are the bad. Right. We're the rebel. Like, yep. Right. So our definition of God is too small. Mm. Like he's much bigger than that. Mm. Yep. Like when Jesus in the New Testament, they saw him as, or they thought the Messiah was going to be this like military might Mm -hmm. who was going to come in and beat Rome and Israel was going to be this great country again. It was going to be back to the times of David, but that's not what he did. Mm -hmm. Like he was this, he lived a simple life, did some miracles, died, defeated death, rose again. Yep. And... You know, he came and went, and most of the world didn't even realize he was there. Yeah. It's completely different from what they had in their head, but God actually saved the day in the way that he needed to. Mm-hmm. Like, he came in and defeated the root of the problem. Which is sin. And, yeah. right. So he did come in, save the day, defeat the villain. But not in the way we were expecting it. Mm-mm. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Like he wasn't really looking to establish like a political reign or a political ruling kingdom. He was establishing a spiritual kingdom. He was establishing the kingdom of God. Um, and you can see God's goodness in Jesus as he's on the cross, um, defeating sin for us and taking on the burden of sin for the whole world. Um, and yet God uses his suffering and uses one the most um brutal way to die in that time by crucifixion to accomplish his purpose of saving us and that was the way of the hero beating the villain was jesus dying a horrible death to beat the villain of satan and the villain of sin and death and the evil in our world so 
it's unexpected, but that's how God works. Yeah. And we have more, we'll get more into God's method and timing a bit more in faithfulness too. Um, But we wanted to really touch on um, suffering because I feel like that's the root of the question. You know, when people are struggling with, is God even good? It's typically because there's some sort of suffering they're looking at and they can't understand how a good God could let this happen. Mm -hmm. And that's really like one of the biggest apologetics questions. Like when people are not Christian and they're looking at Christianity and they just can't wrap their mind around it. This is one of the questions that pops up. Like, is God good even though they're suffering? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like probably, well, not probably, it has been for centuries. One of the biggest theological um, and philosophical debates is how can God be all good yet and all powerful yet there's still evil in the world. Wouldn't he want to stop that since he's good? Um, and obviously we don't really have the time. Like we could spend hours talking about that and really get into the debate and all the time um, to explain like why Christians still believe God is good, even in the midst of suffering and evil in the world. Um, but we're just going to kind of, um, like we've been doing in this podcast, look at what, God himself actually has to say about that through his word um, and kind of look at people in scripture who experienced horrible suffering, yet God still used that and he's still sovereign and good over that evil. Um, And yeah, I think, and kind of going, answering the question a little bit, um, you could you could go the approach and one of the arguments if y'all are interested with that question like how can god be all good yet suffering exist there's a really good argument um by a philosopher a christian philosopher named alvin plantinga i'm sorry if i'm mispronouncing his last name and i wasn't planning on mentioning him but if you want to look it up he has an argument called the free will defense and that really kind of explains how like why there's evil because god couldn't why God wouldn't just create us to be these robots that only chose good because then we really wouldn't be choosing God out of uh, the goodness of our hearts. We would be um, choosing him because you're just programmed to, but that is one argument. And we're also, and what I um, also wanted to touch on is how like God uses suffering and how ultimately like what Cecilia said earlier that if God is going to just wipe out all the evil in the world, he's going to wipe out us too, which I know sounds, um, might sound harsh or intense or whatever, but when we really understand the sinfulness and the depravity of our hearts, like every like thought we have, God sees. And I for one know that every thought I've had since being on this earth, even from just a few years ago, even since being a Christian are not all pure and holy and right and God honoring. And so if he's just going to judge me based on my thoughts, well, yeah, then I'm going to go to hell because that's what I deserve for my sin. Like God sees everything and he's perfect. Like we, we have to really like go back to God's character and how he is perfect and holy and like 
holy in the fact that he's like, um, I heard someone say once he's like pure light, pure, um, like there's no darkness in him. So even one little bit of darkness in that pure light, like you, you can't do that. Um, and so I really like what Cecilia was um, getting at with that we kind of make a judgment based on what God's doing or what he's not doing instead of based on his character. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to do, but I wanted to, yeah, get into how people in scripture have went through suffering, but yet still trusted and had faith in God's goodness and in his timing. Um, but yeah, that was kind of going into the, like answering the question just a little bit for y'all on what Christians believe and also just when you really understand the gospel, I think like the question of like the problem of evil really starts to make more sense because you look at the only innocent man in the world who never sinned dying a criminal's death on a cross for us. And you look at that and you're like, wow, yeah, that's what I deserve. Yet God in his mercy sent his son to take that from me, take that for me. Um, And that's, I think, where we can kind of look at when we go through suffering and look at our suffering savior. So, yeah, and going off of that. And I also wanted to, I really like what, I don't know if Cecilia said it earlier, but she was, um, she wrote down that we can't judge the ultimate judge. And I love that statement. Do you want to like explain a little bit more? Because that's such a, like, so good. Yeah, it was back when I was talking about the adjective definition of us saying God isn't good because he's not doing what he thinks he's supposed to do, what we think he's supposed Mm -hmm. to do. But like, you know, we're not in the place to judge that. And so I put in our notes that we can't judge the ultimate judge. Like God is the judge. Like we are in no position to judge what he does because he's the judge. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. It was just kind of a fun play on words that came to my mind. Like we can't judge the judge. Yeah, you can't judge. We're in no position to say he's not good. Because, like, we're not the judge of that. Yeah, and when you think about it in, like, a uh, like a judicial law sense of, like, even if you've broken, like, a minor law, like, maybe you have a lot of traffic citations, you're still going to go to court. You're still going to have to pay. The judge is still going to hopefully uphold the law and tell you, well, yeah, it might seem minor to you, but this was, you know, this could have hurt you that you could have gone a wreck, whatever, and you're still going to have to pay your fine. And I think we sometimes we need to go back to thinking of the gospel that way as well. Like even we think we've only committed minor sins in our life, but they were still wrong. They still went against the law and God, the ultimate judge is going to judge us based by his law. But instead of saying, okay, you have to pay your fine yourself. No, Christ was the one who kind of stepped in the way and he's the one paying the fine for us for the ways that we've broken the law. And so that's why I really love that statement because I think it really, it's a really good way to think of the gospel and think of our faith. Um, and I just thought it was really worded beautifully too. So I wanted to bring that up before I went into saying what else I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I liked the, the, 
play on words that came with it. Good writer. Um, so we wanted to go through Old Testament and New Testament. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably are guessing what Old Testament book we're going to go to to talk about suffering. Yeah, you probably, you might have guessed it. Um. <laughs> I feel like Job is the Bible, uh, or book of the Bible that most people go to to talk about suffering because it, it's a really in-depth example of suffering. And I feel like a lot of people kind of read it and they're like, I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really in-depth look at suffering and also at God's sovereignty. Um Mm-hmm. You really hit both of them. And I think you also see God's goodness throughout the book of Job as well. But I'm going to do like a quick, it, the book of Job is um 40, is it 42 chapters, Cecilia? It's no. long. It's, it's so long. There's like two page monologues of God and then another monologue from Job and then another monologue from God. It's friends. long. It's a, it's a lot of poetry too. So I mean, some people really like, I mean, I like reading poetry a lot, but the Bible contains a lot of poetry and Job is a very poetic book. Um, There's a lot of imagery too. Like it's just beautifully written. I mean, it's like crazy topic, but like in the way that they, Job describes his emotions and his Mm -hmm. despair, like it's so beautifully written. And then God comes in with this imagery um, in the way that he's Mm -hmm. speaking and like, this authority like it's so well written it's so good it's worth reading it all the way through it is it is so yeah I look it is 42 chapters um so I'm not gonna be able to obviously read all of that or explain every single detail but I'm gonna give like a a bird's eye kind of big picture view of Job and kind of look at how God's good even in our sufferings so kind of the big bird's eye picture view of Job is that at a little bit of background, Job is thought to be probably one of the earliest books actually written um, in scripture. And I think Cecilia would agree with me on this, but I do believe Job was, he actually existed. He was actually historical, um, but I'm not going to get into too much of that. So I do believe he existed and he was one of the most righteous, like, men living on the earth in that time like um and job starts off with a very interesting scene um in heaven where basically satan goes to god and which that kind of that you could open whole can of worms with how is satan like in heaven whatever but basically goes to god and he's like okay, Job, your servant, yeah, he's righteous, but he really only serves you because you give him good things and because you blessed him. If you took away every good thing from him, then Job wouldn't bless you anymore. Job wouldn't care about you. Job wouldn't follow you. Um, Basically, he asked God to let him, let's say, tempt Job and take away um, all of his kind of material blessings and possessions and even his family, and God lets him do that. And that also shows that, yes, like Satan does cause a lot of evil in this world, but ultimately, like he, God has him on a leash in a sense. He really only does what God permits. And that's getting a lot to God's sovereignty. But, and so Job 
So later on, after this kind of heavenly scene happens, Job loses all of his servants, all of his family, all of his possessions, his livestock, everything. And then he's afflicted with all these like um, boils and like sickness over his whole body. Um, and he says, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. But, and this is after he has lost everything, he still blesses the Lord's name, even though everything's been taken away from him. And you know, like saying, you know, afflicts him with sickness and even more pain and suffering and hurt. And Job really does, um, when you get later into the book, um, he has four, actually four friends, because there's another friend that comes in later that keep kind of questioning Job. And they're like, well, Job, you must have sinned to have all this calamity brought on you. You must have done something wrong. Like, there's no reason God would punish you like this. And Job keeps saying, no, I'm innocent. I've done nothing. And so I think that's also not always the best response to suffering is just to say, okay, well, this is just happening because God's punishing you. In Job's case, it wasn't. Um, God wasn't tempting him because God can't tempt us to do evil, but he was testing him to see where his faith truly lied, um, truly laid. Not, yeah, truly laid. Um, and I, another moment I really like in Job is Job's wife basically tells Job, well, you better just curse God and die because obviously nothing's getting better for you. But Job says, no, he's not going to do that. And I think and you can see um, throughout the book of Job, the um, despair and lament of Job's heart. And there's times where he says he wishes he never would have been born, that he wishes he never would have gone through this. Um, and he keeps questioning God. He's like, God, stand up for me. Why are my friends saying this? Like, why won't you, um, why do you keep accusing me to them? And you get to the end of the book of Job, and it's the scripture I wanted to read for y'all. It's in Job 38, and this is finally where Job has kept questioning God, kept questioning God. His friends have tried to explain all of his pain away, and this is what God says to Job. Then the Lord says, this is, um, Job 38, verse 1 through 4. Um, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then um, the Lord goes into all of this explanation of, did you determine the measurements of the earth? Do you even know all the stars? Did you make this earth? Do you even know, um, like he gets into some of the animals and he's like, can you uh, like get prey for the lion? Can you satisfy the appetites of these animals? You know where they get their food? And so God doesn't really so much answer Job's question of why he's suffering. And like, okay, this is why you are suffering. But he says, look to me. Look to how I created this earth. You don't know everything, Job. And kind of going back to what Cecilia said earlier, we're not God. We don't know. And that's kind of, that's God's answer to Job is that, Job, you went there and I created the earth. You don't know how I did this. You don't know even the simplest thing of how the lion gets prey for her food and for her family. You don't even know that, Job. And so Job ultimately 
he humbles himself and he says to God in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then in verse six, um, Job says that he, he says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job, God answers Job, doesn't, doesn't so much explain why he's suffering, but goes to the big picture of creation and how God is sovereign, God is in control. And Job might not understand why all this happened to him, but yet he can trust in the fact that he knows there's a creator over this world who knows the ins and outs of every detail and you and he's still good in spite of the suffering that happened to Job um and it is interesting in the end of Job Job's fortunes um this is also in chapter 42 says that the Lord gave Job uh, verse 10 the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before so the Lord does restore um Job's fortunes back to him and so I think it's also another thing that God is good in our suffering, even if he doesn't restore our fortunes back on this earth. If we know Christ, then we're going to have our fortunes restored to us in heaven. And that's the ultimate hope that we hold on to. We long to in the midst of suffering is that because Christ suffered for us, he purchased for us eternity. And just as God restored Job's fortunes in the end of the book, our fortunes are going to be restored to us in heaven. And that's um, kind of the ultimate hope that you're left with at the end of Job is kind of God's rebuttal back to Job, his sovereignty over creation, his goodness, and that he did restore what was lost back to Job and he'll restore what's lost back to us in heaven. And I think that's kind of the beauty in suffering. If you can, I mean, look at the beauty is that ultimately everything is in history is moving towards a final culmination um, when Christ comes back and there'll be no more suffering and no more pain, no more crying anymore um, in heaven. And so, yeah, Job is pretty, I think one of the most perfect examples, perfect. Well, one of the best examples of God's goodness in times of suffering. And I also wanted to, go to another book in the Old Testament. Um, and this is a minor prophet named Habakkuk, which is, he's a little uh, less known than Job. Um, but also a really interesting story in time. So the background for Habakkuk is that he was a prophet in the land of Judah so the kingdom of Israel split a while back after David and Solomon reigned. And now there's Israel and Judah and Habakkuk is prophesying Judah. And he sees that this sinful nation Babylon is coming to take his people away and into exile. And so he's seeing the suffering happening or about to happen right in front of him. And Habakkuk cries out to God. And he says, oh, Lord, how long can I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? 
Why do you make me see iniquity or sin? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so Habakkuk is basically saying, God, you're not doing anything. You just look at wrong. You don't do anything. There's destruction and violence all around me. There's no justice. You're like, how can you use Babylon, this horrible nation, to come and take my people? And the Lord's answer, which is kind of similar to Job, he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And so God's answer, again, is not really, okay, well, this is why. Um, there's so much destruction and violence and why I'm sending Babylon. He says, oh, I'm still going to do a work in your days. In your days that you wouldn't believe. And basically, God's answer to Habakkuk is, trust me. I'm still going to do this work. And yes, I'm going to punish is Judah, and I'm also going to punish Babylon for what they do, but I'm God, and I'm going to do a good work, and he says in chapter 2 that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, so that was one of his purposes in the exile of Judah to Babylon would be for the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth and for his glory to be over the whole earth. And so God, like you can see in Habakkuk, he has a more specific answer and purpose for the suffering of the people, for his glory to be over the whole earth. Um, but, yeah, and I like, I wanted to point out um, Job and Habakkuk, and Habakkuk, I'm saying that right, and Habakkuk because they, like, they, both show like from a human perspective that it is okay and sometimes it like you need to express your lament um in your pain to the lord and um express how you're feeling to him that's exactly what these two i mean righteous god fearing people did um but even though they like Job kind of gets at times of questioning, like, why is God doing this? Ultimately, they really don't question God's character. They go back to believing. And that, well, Habakkuk does kind of question God's character and why, God, are you doing this? Like, I thought you were good. But they ultimately get the answer that he is still good. He's still doing a mighty work. He still created this earth. And. We can go. No. Yeah, I think. No, you're good. Sorry, I interrupted. Um, in both Job and Habakkuk, the answer God gives them is not an explanation for the suffering, but it's more of a, you know, he points back yeah. to his character. Like in those moments, Job and Habakkuk are looking at the present suffering and asking questions. And God points it back to his character and reminds them of his goodness and his faithfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, is it, are you judging based on God's character or mm -hmm. your circumstances? 
I think God and his sovereignty pointed them back yeah. to his character to kind of ground them again and mm-hmm. give them some answers. Yeah, that's exactly what he does. And I really like how you said that because the last few verses in Habakkuk are some of my favorite verses um, in the whole Bible. And that's basically what Habakkuk does. He says he's still going to rejoice in the Lord and he's still going to take <clears throat> joy in the God of his salvation. And he's going back to God's character. And he says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So he's going back, like you said, Cecilia, to God's character and who he is and trusting in him, um, despite what he sees about to happen and his circumstances. And I think that's kind of what we have, what, um, what is seen in scripture um, with God's goodness and suffering is that we go back to his character and like the definition at the beginning that God does what is best and wants what is best, even if we don't understand at the time. And he, um, Paul says in Romans 8 that he considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That, and Paul, this is going into the New Testament, um, like kind of transitioning in, but Paul um, suffered so much for the gospel, for the sake of Christ. And Cecilia and I were talking about earlier how when God basically calls Paul to himself, he says that Paul is going to suffer for his name. And that's, um, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul did the many times he went into prison. He was almost stoned, beaten, um, all the things that he went through. Yet that this is the man that God chose to use to write a majority of the New Testament to spread the gospel far and wide across the known world at that time. And Paul's suffering, just like Job's um, strength in his faith. And they didn't negate God's goodness. It actually glorified God and proved his goodness in the midst of that because um, both of those two people, Paul and Job, were able to ultimately at the end look back and trust in God's character in their lives. And that's what I really also we wanted to um, go to in the New Testament um, with James 1 and 1 Peter 1, which I'll read for you guys which really talks about how God is or God uses our suffering and our trials for his glory. So James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing and then um peter the apostle peter says in first peter 1 5 through 7 he says um actually i'm going to do verses 6 through 7 5 um but he says in this you rejoice so he's talking about the gospel he just explained how we're born again through the resurrection of christ from the dead and all this Beautiful explanation of the gospel. So he's saying, in this gospel you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I really love these verses in First Peter because when you think about how gold is refined, has to go through, and I don't know the specific details of how gold is refined, but it does have to go through this fire and this refining process until it comes out as the ultimate product of gold that has to go through the refiner's fire to be found um, valuable and like worthy to be sold. And sometimes our faith has to go through the fire, has to go through the suffering and the trials and the pain in order to come out stronger than we have been before. And to also, as Peter says, to show that our faith is genuine. And I really, I mean, there's two things that I just thought of um, that really perfectly go with these two verses. But, and the first is also from the New Testament. Um, it goes with a quote that, okay, let me get my thoughts back together. So when the gospel was spreading in the book of Acts, Basically, it starts spreading because Stephen, who was the first martyr, Christian martyr who died for his faith, um, he dies. And it's very interesting because Paul is standing right there watching him die. But that is how the gospel actually spreads more to um, outside of Jerusalem and Judea, because the people now are forced to scatter because they're being persecuted and the gospel is spreading. So God use that suffering in the martyrdom of Stephen to get his gospel out to more people. Um, and that goes with the early church as well, because um, if you know anything about church history, and even now Christians are the number one um, religious group that is persecuted in the world. But back in the early church, they were persecuted all the time. They had a fear for their lives, fear they're going to be hanged, that they're going to be burned at the stake, all of this stuff just for their faith and for their testimony for Christ. Um, and then Tertullian, who is um, one of the early church fathers, just an early Christian um, from the early church, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, and that's what strengthens and grows the church, he argued, is the blood of the martyrs that have went before us and have died and suffered for their faith. And then another example from history, from more recent history, that... I just love this woman. She passed away a few years ago. I don't know the exact date, but her name is Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if you've heard of her. She has a really um, great book called The Hiding Place. Um, but she was, she lived during World War II in, she didn't live in Germany. I don't remember the exact um, country that she lived in. Um, I'll have to look that up, actually. But she and her family, they she, um, her family, her, all of her family were Christians, um, and they hid Jews during the Holocaust, and they actually ended up going to a concentration camp for hiding Jews. Um, and you can read through Corey Ten Boom and her, I think most of her family, I know her sister died in the concentration camp, um, and she was one of the only ones to come out. And you can just like the suffering that she went through and she talked, she's talked about it a lot. If you want to look up just she's where she's spoken in the past. Um, but just one instance she talks about is where they're like forced to strip down and um, 
just be naked in front of these guards and get like their tattoos and like all of this just wicked stuff in the um where they're forced to live in and but like Corey Tim Boomer said yeah you know I'm not perfect I did question like why God was letting us go through this but ultimately she held on to Christ and held on to his suffering and that she was there for a purpose and she wanted to fight against so while she was suffering she was also trying to fight against the suffering caused by the evil regime of the Nazis and fight against evil as well um I think that's just another example of how God doesn't promise us like God's goodness doesn't equate to a happy, healthy, prosperous life. I'm not saying all those things are bad. Um, and I say this as someone who has a happy, healthy, prosperous life in America, but that's not what God, what being a Christian always equates to. It's not what he equated to for Paul or for Peter or for the early church or for Corey Ten Boom or her family. That's not what it equated to. But yet God's character is still constant throughout all of that and he's still in control and sovereign and good over those sufferings um yeah yeah that's really good i'm glad you brought those up um i think you know like when we go through suffering um you know it's a lot easier to see god's goodness if we can look back on like the suffering we've had and kind of see how God's goodness and like God, God used that suffering. Like when when you were talking about Mm -hmm. the martyrs and how the persecution is what helped the gospel spread though. It was difficult for them. Like God's Mm -hmm. glory came out in the end. And I think, you know, with both, um, these passages uh, like James and first Peter talking about suffering, strengthening faith, like also good, like comes out of it. Like I think back to my own life and my own walk with Christ. Um, And there were times when I was younger, when I was having, you know, some health issues and that made my faith strengthen um, at a lot younger of an age than I think most people, Mm -hmm. people's faith strengthens. Like, Um, I had a stronger faith as a middle schooler than I think most people my age had, not because I was a better Christian, just because I was going through suffering and God was using that to strengthen my faith. And I'm very glad that he did, though I didn't enjoy the circumstances that strengthening equipped me and prepared me for harder suffering that, um, has come my way since. And though suffering is a really difficult and it kind of, it's kind of hard for Christians to wrap their mind around, especially with this question of God's goodness. Um, But I think it does get a little easier when you can look back and see the strengthening that has happened because of suffering. And like looking at Paul's life in the new Testament, you can see how all of this suffering has like refined him like gold to where he could have lasted as long as he did spreading the yeah. gospel. And I think also with the question of suffering, 
we kind of forget how it affects more than just us. Like what you were saying about Mm -hmm. the martyrs, like God in his goodness uses suffering to affect other people. It's not just a, it's God is using to strengthen your faith, but there's other people involved in this than just you. Like there've been multiple times when I have been able to counsel and help a Christian who's struggling in the midst of suffering because I've been Mm. in the next, that exact same place. And because God brought me through that, I'm able to go alongside another Christian and help them through that. And so when we come to this question of God's goodness in suffering, I think it's important not only to remember how God refines us through that and makes us stronger so we can face even Mm -hmm. harder struggles that are coming our way, but also how it ripples into other things and how it's not just us in this, like it affects other people. And yet God in his goodness and sovereignty works with all of those puzzle pieces and pieces it together to where it's a good and and just result. It just baffles me how God in his sovereignty can manage all of these tiny pieces and make everything work. Yeah, I mean, I think that story kind of like what you're saying, Cecilia, goes back with, I mean... Corey Ten Boom is, again, I, sorry, I love Corey Ten Boom, but she's a great example of that because, and she actually lived in the Netherlands. She was Dutch. Look that up. I got that. Um, but throughout like her whole life, how God prepared her and prepared her family to hide Jewish people and to be thrown into a concentration camp. Like he prepared them um, their whole lives to be able to do that and gave them the strength and the endurance to stand up in the midst of suffering, to stand up for people who are hurting and for um, people who are being unjustly murdered in through nothing, like no, no, they didn't deserve that through no fault of them just because an evil man was in control. And I think you can see that. And she, like, she probably can't even see the fruit in that time when she was in this concentration camp, there's no way she could really look to the future um, and look 40, 50 years down the line and see, wow, even Christians today are being impacted by the faithfulness of her life to Christ and being encouraged to speak out against evil and injustice. And that's, I think one of the amazing things God does is he uses our suffering, even if we don't see it in the time that we're in, he uses it. He could use it a hundred years down the line because you just, you don't know. You don't know how God is going to use what you're going through. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to also, yeah. Made me think of um, a verse in second Timothy at second Timothy three twelve that says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, and I think we have, like, like we definitely, I don't know, I'm trying to phrase this in a good way, but we definitely go through suffering, and I don't really think, like, extreme persecution in the United States, but obviously there's people that are going through suffering, Christians that have cancer, Christians that 
lose their children, um, have health, have to go get surgery, have, um, like those are real sufferings just as much as anything else. Um, but I guess I just wanted to take a little bit of time in this podcast just to encourage y'all and anyone listening to also pray for our persecuted, um, brothers and sisters that are suffering around the world. Um, because it's really crazy to think, like I said earlier, like Christians are the number one um, persecuted religious group in the world. And in many um, Muslim-majority countries, a lot of Christians are persecuted for their faith. They're not just some, you know, they lose their jobs or shunned from their families. Some are murdered for their faith. They're killed. They're drug out of their homes. Um, they have to worry every day if there's going to be a gun to their head saying, are you going to deny Christ who is in this house church with you as in other um, Asian countries, that happens a lot. And just, I think another part with suffering and how God uses it is that he reminds us of the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and of people around the world and the need to pray and to give and to show our support to those who are suffering. Like Romans says, we need to weep with those who weep. And yeah. I think that's one way to do that. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah. That's good. <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up. Um. So the one of the last points we've got on here, um, I think we can't really talk about the new yeah. Testament without talking about the cross at some point. Um, <laughs> we always end up talking about the gospel at some point in these. Um, so I think like a, a good statement to draw from the new Testament in this whole discussion of goodness and suffering. Um, is that when you're looking at God's goodness, like, the proof of his goodness is not in our circumstances, but it's in the cross. And we talked about that a little bit about, you know, the cross being the ultimate act of goodness. But despite our circumstances, like God is good. And the proof we have of that is the cross. That was the ultimate act of goodness. Like God didn't have to, save us if he was completely just mm -hmm. to wipe us all out but in his goodness and mercy he provided a way of salvation and so i think that his true goodness is not in relieving our sufferings mm -hmm. but in healing yes, ourselves that is the perfect way to end this podcast i love how you phrase that cecilia his goodness and that like, that just goes against so much of the false doctrine and teaching we see in the church today, and especially in America. Mm -hmm. That goes against it. Because Prosperity that's gospel. Not what the gospel is for. The gospel is for the healing of our souls. And he might heal our bodies, but even if he doesn't, if we're in Christ, like I said earlier, we know our bodies will be healed in heaven. And that's the joy and the hope that we have. It's not that. If I have enough faith, God will heal me because 
our faith isn't dependent on if God heals us or if he doesn't. It's dependent on his goodness and his character. And yeah, the prosperity gospel is false. And right. I love how you Yeah. We could do a it's whole other podcast else, on that. But yeah, I really love that. And I guess I'll read the quote uh, that I also put. But yeah, kind of what Cecilia was saying. Our last point was that God's goodness does not depend on us. We are not good, yet he is. And the thing is, he makes us good by the power of his son's blood. And I was reading yesterday in, um, there's a book, it's a devotional called The New City Catechism, um, which is really good. It, it took a quote from a old theologian called, named, called, named John Chrysostom and basically talking about Christ um, and his character and how he came down to this earth, you know, being fully God and lived in a human body. Um, and this is what he has to say about the measure of Christ's goodness. He says that total humiliation is the measure of his goodness. Like that's the measure of how good God is that Christ went through total humiliation for us. Like Cecilia was um, saying with the gospel and with Christ in his blood. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. So, I love that. Do you have anything else? All right. No, yeah. that's good. Okay. What a note to well, end on. You do our outro? Yeah, let's do it. The grace of our Lord and Jesus Christ to be all with of you. you who are in Christ. <laughs>